The Old Testament reading is taken from Joel, chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. This can be found on page 763 in the Bibles in the chairs. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Eden a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Good morning. Good to be with you all this morning. What do you think about heaven? What do you think about heaven? Here's what George Bernard Shaw thought. Heaven, as conventionally conceived, is a place so inane, so dull, so useless, so miserable that nobody has ever ventured to describe a whole day in heaven, though plenty of people have described a day at the seaside. I enjoyed a lovely trip to the seaside recently. I actually could talk about it at length, but right now you'll be relieved to hear. I think it's better to describe and talk about the end of Joel chapter 3, which I think does an excellent job of describing exactly what heaven will be like. But Shaw has a, a point, doesn't he? There's some truth in that. There's some truth in how we perhaps, how our world can view heaven. And I reckon if I asked most of us how much we thought about heaven, we'd say, not enough. And I reckon if I asked us how often we talked about or described heaven, we'd probably say, hardly ever. At least that's how I'd answer those questions. Best guess is that Joel is written after God's people returned from exile. We can't be certain about that, but it does fit the context and the story pretty well. And if that's the case, the exile would have been a lingering memory for God's people. And what is clear is that in Joel's day, things weren't exactly going well. There is that disastrous locust plague in chapter 1, which God allowed to happen to bring the people back into proper relationship with him. So I guess that the thoughtful Israelite at the time would have looked around, looked at the struggling people of God and thought, what's going on? Is God going to protect us in the future? Has he abandoned us now? Is he going to allow us to suffer on forever? And they might have looked at God's enemies, the other nations, and thought, well, they've got a way of it. What's God going to do about how we've been treated? Does he not care? And Joel chapter 3 addresses those concerns by showing a picture of the final blessed state of God's people to come. 
And that is why Joel 3, that is why these verses are great news for us today. Because they're going to show us a picture of God, what God will ultimately do about the troubles of this life. They're going to show us what it will be like to be with God, to be with him forever. And my hope and my prayer is that it gets us thinking, talking, longing about heaven more. So let's pray now. Lord, from your word this morning, please help us to comprehend what heaven will be like. Help us to respond by thinking, talking, and longing for that future blessing. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Here's what we see, first of all. God's people will experience his ultimate blessing. God's people will experience his ultimate blessing. Verse 16. I want to follow along in your Bibles. Verse 16, Joel chapter 3. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. So God was saying to his people, no matter how things look now, I will protect you. You are my chosen people. And that word Zion in verse 17 means Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, of course, stands for God's people from the people back then right through to us today. And so God was saying, look, there will come a day when everyone around you will know that I am your God. Because I will dwell with you and you will dwell with me in heaven forever. And this is more than a promise to God's people back then. It's a promise that there will be a day when all of God's people through all of time will enjoy his protection and his presence for eternity. And that is a staggering promise for us, a staggering promise for us today. Because even on the very, very best day of our Christian lives, our relationship with God does not free us from the presence of sin both our own sin and the sin of the world around us. So think about all the rubbish that you've said and thought and done and felt. Think of the effects everyone else's sin has on you. Think of the effects of sin on our world. Think of all the ways you've been hurt and let down and mistreated. None of that will be there. God's people, verse 17 says, will be holy, completely pure, righteous, like God. That means God is committed to one day ridding us of our sin, ridding the world of sin once and for all. And this is where we're going. This is the end point. So sin now in us is not the real us. It's not who we are. And one day it will not be part of us at all. And so that should encourage us to keep going, keep trying to live like God now. Because if holiness is our destiny, we need to ask, how are we preparing ourselves now for that? How are we preparing ourselves now for what is to come? So what steps do you need to take? There will be no sin. There will be no consequences of sin. 
And that includes God's enemies, verse 17. And strangers shall never again pass through it. That's the image of an army having conquered Jerusalem and marching through it in triumph, in victory. And so God is saying, one day, that type of thing will never happen again. One day, your enemies will never be able to hurt you. In fact, they won't be able to come anywhere near you. So no more Islamic state, no more aggressive atheists or humanists out to get Christians because God's rule, it wouldn't be perfect if those opposed to him were able to live in his presence and harm his people. And for all of this to happen, it's going to take God to create a new world and his rule established and his presence perfectly felt. That's what our New Testament reading describes as the new Jerusalem. And God will be there. He will be there physically in King Jesus to rule, to be with his people, because you can't have a perfect world without it being ruled by a perfect king. And God the king created us as his people to enjoy the goodness of him, the goodness of his presence forever. So as Revelation 21 verse 3 says... Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So the picture Joel is painting for us here is complete intimacy with God. Because although our sins are forgiven once and for all when we trust in Jesus, we do not yet enjoy it. A, a perfect, intimate, unhindered relationship with him. We have a deep relationship with him, but it is not unhindered. It is not perfectly intimate. We can't see him now. And one day we will see him. And we will see him face to face. We'll be physically with him. And that will be better. It will be better by far. Because there will be no feelings of sin, no feelings of wanting to be better, no feelings of... I- I wish I could be closer to God. He'll be there and we will be there with him. And this new world, well, it will be some place because verse 18 continues. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. And water the valley of Shittim. So water symbolizes life. Life flowing from the presence of God. No more death. And flowing milk symbolizes abundance. There's no more need of any kind. C.S. Lewis in his great book, The Great Divorce, writes vividly about what awaits us in this new creation of grass that remains unruffled under our feet of dew that remains perfectly intact upon it, of flowers in the fields whose stalks cannot be broken, of everything feeling solider, more beautiful, better, more real than ever before. And nothing in this world can even come close. Let's not forget that image of sweet, flowing wine. When in your experiences wine flow abundantly? At a wedding, party, a celebration. And that's exactly what this is. A celebration, a rejoicing in God's victory over evil forever. 
a celebration that as people get to enjoy him forever. Jesus will be there along with every believer from the beginning of time. We'll delight in him, who he is and what he's done for the rest of eternity. So how does that sound to you? Inane? Miserable? I don't think so. Truth is, isn't it, that a fair few of us here will have had a tough week, a tough year, a tough longer, a tough life. And we're wondering, frankly, whether God is ever going to do anything about that. Is God ever going to do anything about the state of our world? And one of the unsettling things about COVID was that great awareness that nothing is finally holy, nothing is finally safe, Nothing is finally abundant. Locust plagues, pandemics, the ravages of sin, it's all far more normal than we care to admit. And that is why we need this picture of Jewel Free to remind us that ultimate blessing is there and it lies beyond this life. It lies beyond history itself in a new world, in a world that is ruled by King Jesus and this world can't be and never will be able to offer us enough even at its very best. I don't know if you've ever been to an airport and you've been told that your gate is literally a 25-minute, a 30-minute walk away, you know, literally miles. And there are those long, endless walkways of those strange escalator-like platforms that you get on and you walk and you walk and you walk. You feel like you're getting nowhere. It goes on and on and on. But the truth is you are moving you're moving towards your destination and you're being carried there on those platforms, whether you realize it or not. As Christians, we are going to a place where there will be no more pain, where Jesus will be enjoyed forever. And even when we don't realize it, even when we don't feel it, we are going in that direction. And we have a certainty and a clarity about this that Joel and the people of Joel's time could barely have imagined. At that time, God's people related to him through the temple. That is where his presence was experienced, felt. But today, through Jesus' work on the cross, we, the church, are the temple. The presence of God is in us and within us. So we have a small taste, a small taste of what heaven will be like in church life and in church life at its very best. But like Revelation 21 shows us, there is infinitely greater to come. And all that stands between us today and that is Jesus' return, his return to wrap up history forever. And friends, each day is a good day because we're one day closer to that. So God, through Jewel, wanted to trouble people to fix their eyes on a picture of ultimate blessing because when life was tough and hard that is what he wanted them to bank on and that's exactly what he wants for us too but he also wants us to see that God's enemies will experience his ultimate judgment God's enemies will experience his ultimate judgment and that's our second point and the final few verses of this great book verse 19 Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah 
because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So if you'd been an Israelite at the time of Jude, and Egypt or Edom had been mentioned, it would have provoked a strong, guttural reaction within you. Because they were the traditional enemies of God's people. And they're mentioned here representatively really to stand for all the enemies of God. What have these enemies done? Verse 19, they've harmed, they've killed the people of God. And it is on that basis that God judges them. Because the Bible is clear how God, how people treat God's children is ultimately how they treat God and how they respond to him, how people respond to him, is what really matters. We might think of nations today with governments hostile to Christians, legislation hostile to Christianity, both are, are seen in many, many different ways. We might think of, think of the many believers around the world who have experienced persecution, often violent persecution. A former, former member of the JBC church family came from Iraq, his family fled the country, left everything behind as their village was destroyed by, Chris, by Islamic State and Christians were slaughtered. How do you even begin to understand that? How do you begin to process it? A few of us here have had to take a stand at work for our faith. Maybe that's brought us further trouble. Someone I know became a Christian in their 30s. They were abandoned by every single friend that they had. Their friends just didn't want to know them anymore. Remember a student who I knew from a while back who became a Christian, and their parents' reaction was to put their Bible in the bin. He went out and he bought another one. That's not really the point, is it? These things are small in comparison to what some believers, our brothers and sisters around the world, have to suffer. In this country, our lives are not routinely under threat of course but these things are still painful and surely we do live in an increasingly anti-christian world where things like this will become more frequent and that's why we need you free because these verses show us that god will do something about all of this he cares about how he's treated he cares about how his children are treated and one day he'll do something about Boko Haram. One day he'll do something about persecuted Christians in China and anti-Christian legislation in this country. One day he'll bring justice to every mistreated Christian. One day he'll sort it all out. And on that day, nothing that is against God will be able to harm any Christian any further. We'll be safe and secure in him. Verse 20, we'll be with him. There is nothing more important than being a follower of Jesus. Following him, following him alone, brings this eternal safety. And wherever you've been a Christian for years, wherever you're still looking into the Christian faith, you need to know that. There is nothing but faith in Jesus Christ that will save you when it comes to that final day. Once again, we see that those who are God's enemies will be excluded because they've chosen to live without God. 
And God won't just let evil and injustice be swept under the carpet. He will judge. And these verses point to Jesus' once for all final judgment at the end of time. And he won't get it wrong. He will judge perfectly. He will judge comprehensively. He will judge fairly. And that gives us something to hold on to. It gives us hope when we face trouble in life. It gives us hope when we face trouble for our faith. Or when we hear of brothers and sisters around the world who have, who are living through atrocity because they've kept going and following Jesus. And the fact that one day Jesus will come and he will judge is freeing because it means that we can get on with living the lives that God has called us to. We leave the judgment down to him. We don't take back. We hold out the good news of the gospel. We hold it out to everyone, no matter who they are, even those who persecute us. Because God wants to save people. He wants people to hear about him. And we have a role in that. We don't choose who he saves. No. He does. And without his mercy towards us, well, where would we be? Friends, life this side of heaven can be tough. Often it is tough. But Jewel reminds us as Christians that we are on a path. A path of ultimate blessing that lies beyond this world. And God will get us there. So let's prove to each other that those old and cynical words of Shaw fundamentally are wrong. Don't you see? Heaven, heaven will be better. So let's live speak and be captivated by this vision of the final blessing to come. Let's pray. Our Father, we so often fail to fix our eyes on the future blessing that awaits us. So we are thankful for passages like this that show us the blessing of heaven. Lord, we can't comprehend all of this. But we pray that we would rejoice and long for and think and speak about this blessing to come. Father, remind us that when times are hard, heaven will be better. Remind us that final blessing comes with final judgment. May that comfort us if we need comforted. May it disturb us if we need disturbed. And would it point us back to your mercy and grace always offered to us through the great Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's sing in response to God's word of the day. When we meet Jesus, we enjoy his new world with him forever. <laughs>